We're looking at Galatians 4, uh, 21 through 31. Is that, if you've got a Bible open to that, um, if not, you can just listen. Galatians chapter 4. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born, accord, born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written... Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as that is at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let me pray for us, and we'll take a look at this passage. Our Father, we pray uh, thanking you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word, and we pray... Father, that you would send your spirit tonight to meet us in the midst of our questions and doubts, our burdens, our joys, uh, and all of these things. We pray that, uh, that you would meet us and that you would ultimately reveal Jesus to us tonight and that he would be the one that we come to see more clearly and the one uh, that we come to love in a greater way. Be with us, we pray, for your glory and our good. Amen. Um, one of the biggest performers to come to Purdue, this is one of the things that's kind of cool about being at a, uh, a big university is, and being like out in the middle of nowhere, which is where uh, we are in Indiana at Purdue, is that you have, uh, you have performers that come and do concerts on campus in, in, the, uh, in the Coliseum there. And uh, one of the biggest was Lady Gaga, who came a few years back. I didn't go to the concert. Um, Snoop Dogg came was not as big a deal. I was disappointed about that. Didn't go to that either. Um, But I've kind of been fascinated with Lady Gaga from afar. I don't own any music or anything. But I'm fascinated by her because she's this weird combination uh, of, like, unpredictable behavior. Also, with this mix of this honest struggle of, like, where she's been and kind of wrestling with who am I and what image do I want to put forward... And then also, like, she's a legitimate musical talent. Don't ask Wade about that. Um, here's what she says. Uh, this is a quote that, that, that says uh, something pretty significant about her. She says, My whole life is a performance. I have to up the ante every day. My whole life is a performance. Now, that makes a lot of sense if you know her and know some of what she's uh, dealing with and what her life looks like. Um, it's fascinating to think about this, that her entire identity is wrapped up in her performance and she is aware of that. Who she is is equated with what she does. 
There are probably not many places where you would look and say, I look a lot like Lady Gaga. My life is a lot like hers, right? Probably not many. This is probably one of them, though, where you can look and say, I get what she's saying there. That feeling of thinking my entire life is built on my performance. I think this is the case because you and I live in a performance-driven world. Everything that you do is based on your performance. You are constantly being evaluated by what you do. Some examples of this. You got into TCU, right, because of your performance, because of your GPA in high school, because of your SAT score, because of your extracurricular activities. You remain here. By the way, it's a lot harder to get into TCU now than when I was here, which is pretty great because it just keeps upping the value of my degree. So keep that going. You remain here because of your performance, what you do. The job that you will get after you graduate or the grad school that you attend will be based on your performance. And some of you have experienced this also in your families, where your relationship with your parents rises and falls with whether or not you are meeting their expectations. Whether you have the grades that they want you to have, whether you have the boyfriend that your mother wants you to have, whether you are involved in enough extracurricular activities and are building your resume to put, you, put yourself in a position to get the job that you need. And some of you, if you're honest, if you're really honest, are living your lives with the hope that you will just one day hear from your parents, I am proud of you. You've done enough. We live in this performance driven world. And the problem is that because this is the air we breathe, we import this into our relationship with God. This becomes the way that we relate to Him. And my guess is that that's probably the the common understanding of Christianity here in general. It was when I was here, and it probably continues to be. God is happy with you if you've done something good. He's ticked at you if you've done something bad. What Paul says in this passage, and what we're going to look at tonight is that there are ultimately only two ways of relating to God. He describes two paths for us, or two ways. One way is slavery, and the other way is freedom. Those are the only two options, slavery or freedom. And he describes this in these admittedly weird terms of these two sons coming from these two mothers that represent two covenants. Okay? That's where he's going with this, that ultimately represent these two ways of relating to God. Here's what he's going to show us, and I want, what I want you to see tonight. He's going to show us the danger and emptiness of the way of slavery. He shows us that. But he also shows us this glorious freedom of the path, uh, of this way of freedom, of this way of relating to God as a son instead. Okay? Here's our focus tonight. I believe this is in your, uh, in your handout there. It's this. Jesus calls us to stop living as who you aren't and to start living as who you are. Stop living as who you aren't. Start living as who you are. Two points, okay? First is this, the way of slavery. Jesus calls us to stop living as we aren't. Okay, what is this way of slavery? I'm going to try and keep this tight here. Paul sets the stage with this question. If you've got your Bible open, look back at verse 21. He says this, You who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Quick reminder of where, uh, what, what Paul is saying here. I know Ryan's probably said this over and over again this semester. 
What Paul is doing here is he's arguing against these opponents who have come into the Galatian church and are saying to really be a member of God's people, to really be a recipient of God's salvation, you need to become Jewish. You need to start, you need to be circumcised, you need to follow these dietary laws, and you need to keep Sabbath because that's the way that God will really be happy with you. It's Jesus plus something else. Stick with me here because we're going to dig into this passage a little bit and this is going to get a little, little tricky here. We're going to do a little work and I don't want to get bogged down. What he does to confront his opponents is he appeals back to the Old Testament. And that's what's happening in these, pa- in, in these few verses. Look back at verse 22. Here's what he says. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. Okay, let's talk about this slave woman. The first son, the first mother, and the first covenant. Okay, Verse 23, he says this son was born according to the flesh. We'll back up. What's he talking about? Genesis 12. I don't assume everybody here is a Christian or that you know the Bible necessarily. Let me try and explain a little bit. Genesis 12. This is the first book of the Bible. This is a foundational story for the whole of the Bible and particularly for the Jewish people. God makes this promise to Abraham. He says, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to make your descendants like the stars in the sky, and I'm going to bless the world through you. Okay? It's this huge promise that he makes. Two, two huge problems with this. One, Abraham's 100. Okay? And Sarah, his wife, is 90. That's old, right? Uh, to have children, things aren't looking so good. A second problem is that Sarah is barren. She's never been able to have kids. So, what Abraham does then to try and work through this difficulty, and this is actually Sarah's idea as well, Sarah gives her slave, Hagar, to Abraham and says, this is the way the promise is going to be fulfilled. Have a child with my slave. Wasn't a totally weird practice in that time. But here's what Paul says about this. He says that this is actually then, uh, that the son is Ishmael, and this, this son that is born to Hagar is a slave because his mother is a slave. And what you and I need to see about this is that this represents human effort to bring about God's promise. Human effort that is opposed to God's, to trusting God's promise. This is grasping and earning, trying to make things happen rather than trusting in God. Okay? One thing we need to see rather than trusting in God alone. He says they're from Mount Sinai. This is where the law was given to Moses, Mount Sinai. And then he goes on to say that they bear the children of slavery. So it wasn't just that Ishmael was a slave. It's that those who are in this line, who follow this way, are also slaves themselves. He goes on to say then that they correspond to present Jerusalem. What the heck does that mean? Here's what it means. refers to Paul's opponents present Jerusalem as opposed to heavenly Jerusalem, who's actually in right relationship with God. So here's the point. They're saying that obedience to the law is necessary. And what Paul says is that because of their desire, you who desire to be under the law, you are actually now enslaved to that law. You have missed Jesus because of this law. You want to return to it? And now you're enslaved because of it. What does this look like for us? I would highly doubt that anybody is saying that to be a true member of God's people, you need to be circumcised or you need to stop eating pork or sushi, right? You're not hearing that? Nobody's hearing that. Um, Here's what this looks like for us. 
This is subtle. And it comes in these very small, often unspoken expectations that we add on to the Christian life. I'm sure Ryan has mentioned plenty of these this semester. It's the thought that God is only happy with me when I am super involved in every ministry that I possibly can. It's thinking that God is only happy with me if I have this rich devotional life with these long quiet times every morning. Or put negatively, God is only happy with me when I am not riddled with this struggle of addiction to pornography. Or He's only happy with me when I'm no longer, stu- when I'm no longer uh, addicted to, to this, this struggle of how much or how little I'm eating and how people are viewing me. Or God is only ever happy with me when I'm not struggling with the same-sex attraction that is so deeply, deeply down within me. It's adding something to Jesus. And that is the problem for us. Some of you, I would guess, just have this nagging sense that there's no way, there's no way, maybe even after this weekend, there's no way that God could be happy with me. There's no way. I'm not happy with me. How could God be happy with me? I need to do more. I need to be more, 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 better, better, better. This is what it looks like for us. And Paul says that is slavery. And some of you hear that and you say, yes. I know exactly what that feels like. I live there in this place of slavery. And what he's saying is that when we add anything to Jesus, we have lost sight of the gospel and we have given up our freedom and willfully subjected ourselves to being slaves. Why is this tempting? It's tempting for a couple reasons. It's tempting... Because we live in this performance-driven world which makes it incredibly difficult to just say, I'm going to stop performing. I'm going to stop doing this. Because what we want so badly is to, to, to take the credit, to say that, that, yeah, it is my own doing. I'm the one who, who, who dictates my success or failure. And to believe that you are the recipient of grace that comes apart from anything you've done or haven't done can be really offensive. If you're the go-getter, if you're the type A, that is hard. I know that because that's me, okay? That is hard to hear. Try this on. Your life starts to feel like a treadmill. And as your responsibilities increase, as you get older, as your time goes on in college and you start having to think long-term, responsibilities increase... And the things that are expected of you increase. It feels like somebody is just one after another increasing the incline and the speed on this treadmill. And you think, if I even think about getting off this thing right now, it's going to be ugly. That's what this slavery does to us. Some of you are utterly exhausted tonight with that. It is so tempting to remain in this because we're so fearful to step away. I think it's also tempting to remain in this slavery because it becomes familiar and comfortable to us. You get used to beating yourself up and evaluating yourself over, how did I do today? Was I good? Did I do well? Did I do poorly? And so slavery becomes what we know, and it's hard to leave. Um, There's this incredible article uh, written by Nicholas Kristof in the New York Times. uh, It was 2005, and it was called Back to the Brothel. Uh, You guys know Nicholas Kristof at all? 
he does this third world work a lot, and he's very involved with women's rights in, in other parts of the country where women are treated horribly. So what he did is he went to this place in Cambodia, and he bought two sex slaves out of slavery. He bought two of them out. One, I'm going to butcher the name, it's S-R-E-Y, Srey? Uh, Srey Mom. Okay, here's what happened. She returns to her family, and her family thought she, she was dead. Um, so there's just this huge party, they're rejoicing, and they're excited. So Nicholas Kristof goes back a year later. Here's what he says. I'm devastated to say that a year later, I found Srey Mom back in the wild town of Poipet in her old brothel. She's devastated too. When she spotted me, she ran away to her room in the back of the brothel until she could compose herself. Here's what she says. I never lie to people, but I lied to you, she said forlornly. I said I would not come back, and I did. I didn't want to return, but I did. He goes on to say this is actually pretty common, that women who have been in this setting are bought out and end up back in it because they know no other way. And he tells her that he's afraid she's going to get AIDS and die, She says, I'm afraid of that too, she replied, her voice breaking. This is an unhappy life. I don't want to do this. And here's how he concludes this. She seems unable to escape a world that she hates and knows is killing her. That sounds crazy to us. But what Paul is saying is that that is exactly what we do when we turn back to our own obedience and turn back to the law rather than to Jesus. It's insanity. It's returning to this slavery. And here's where it leads. Verse 29. It leads to despising others. Ishmael has despised uh, Isaac in Genesis 21. Paul's opponents now are despising and persecuting these Christians. And if you and I fall into this, we actually also begin despising other people. If we look to our obedience and look to the law, then we begin despising other people. Why? Because if you're looking to the law, then your entire life is a competition. And everybody around you become competitors. And you despise them for it because you're constantly competing against them. Is that how you view people? As those who are competitors? So it leads to despising others. Verse 30, it leads to death. He says they are cast out. He says they have no inheritance. Ultimately, they miss Jesus. They slowly, they begin looking to the law. They want to import the law to this and look to their own obedience. And what happens is that if we're doing that and looking to our standing before God as based on what we do, then we're no longer looking to Jesus. That is a dangerous place to be. And what Paul says to you, if you are a Christian here tonight, is that is not who you are. Stop living as who you aren't. You are not a slave. Second point, this is how Jesus calls us away from this. He calls us to the way of freedom. He invites us to start living as who we are. Here's what this is. We'll be very brief here. The other son, the other mother, the other covenant here, okay? Look how Paul puts it. He says, Isaac was born to Sarah, who was free, verse 22. The how of this is important. Remember, Abraham tried to to take this matter into his own hands, had a baby with Hagar to think this was going to be the way that the promise is fulfilled. That's not how it all ended, though. Sarah ended up bearing a child. 
And it was through promise, Paul says. It was a picture of trusting in God for something that there's no way they could ever do on their own. She was barren. They're beyond childbearing years. This is a work of God. They're looking to God to do something that they cannot do on their own. And it's in that, then, that, that, that Isaac is this child of freedom. And here's what Paul says, verse 28 and verse 31. If you have trusted in Jesus tonight, then you are a son of this woman. You are a son of this free woman. You are not a slave. You are living in this way of freedom. You are a child of promise. How do we become free? Most basic statement of the gospel. We are justified before God because Jesus has fulfilled this law on your behalf. Because what we couldn't do, Jesus has done. He succeeded where you and I have failed. And so he has lived the life that you have not lived. That you can't live. And he's died the death that you deserve. This is what it means to be free. This is how we become free. How do we receive that? By looking to the law? No. It's a gift. We receive it by faith. That's Paul's whole point here. He accepts you not based on what you do, but based on what God has done for you in Jesus. Okay. As we start wrapping up here, I want to draw our attention to something, though. That can still feel very scary. Some of you here uh, probably have been Christians for quite a while. And you're still struggling with this in immense ways. And you still think, that is still so frightening to me to think about stepping off this treadmill. It's scary. What what are the people going to think of me if if I stop perfecting myself this way? Why is that so scary for us still? It's scary for us because... We, we are clinging to this obedience to the law and thinking, if I just continue to obey perfectly, if I put forward this perfect image, then nobody will reject me. Nobody will turn from me. God won't reject me. Other people won't reject me. If I just keep this perfection up, if I keep putting this forward, there's no way I'll ever be rejected. Nobody will ever put me out. And the law becomes a means of self-protection. If that's you here tonight, I want you to listen to this. At the heart of this freedom of the gospel is the certainty, the absolute certainty that Jesus will never, ever reject you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. It is an absolute impossibility for that to happen if you have put your faith in Jesus. The reason that you are free, the reason Paul can talk about this freedom, is that there is no possible way that God could ever turn from you. Because your standing is based on what Jesus has done and not based on what you have done. So you are free because you are loved and you are justified by God apart from what you have done. And that is the real freedom. Do you want proof? What's the certainty? Certainty is the cross. Your standing before God is as certain as Jesus' death and resurrection. And you can bank on those things. That is freedom. And this is what it results in. Paul says in verse 30 that those who are true sons of Abraham have this incredible inheritance. 
This certainty of a life with God and of a future with God. And there's a permanency to that that impacts your life now. That means you can be free from the slavery. That you don't have to subject yourself to that. That this is actually new life that is freeing and liberating. Because what it means is that you are a child of freedom. And Paul can say to you, live as who you are. Do you believe that tonight? I want to end with this quote um, that my campus minister said weekly. He would welcome us with this every week. Um, and I, I think it might be on here. I don't know if it is or not. I'll read it to you. He, he used to welcome us with this. And this summarizes it so well. It's a quote from Jerry Bridges. He says, You're never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And at the same time, you are never so good that you don't stand in utter need of God's grace. You hear that? You're never so bad that you stand outside the reach of God's grace. You can't out His grace. You're never too far gone. But at the very same time, you are never so good that you don't stand in utter need of His grace. Jesus offers you that grace. This freedom is yours if you put your faith in Jesus. So he invites you to step off that treadmill. He invites you to come out from behind these, the, the, this, these bars of slavery and to live in this life of freedom that he gives you because your standing before God is eternally certain and secure. Do you believe that? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you uh, that this most basic message is true. That our standing before you is not something that we have to muster up. It's not something that we have to concoct on our own. But that it's something we can, uh, we can accept and receive as a pure gift because of what Jesus has done for us. I pray, Father, that we would see that. That we would rest in that. That we would relish that. That we would love the freedom that is ours. And that we would live into this freedom. We pray this all for your glory and for our good as your people. Amen.